Do you need a CPA that you can trust with all your taxes and financial needs? Look no further than Joanne Flash Fleming at Fleming & Associates CPA. For more info, go to flashfleming.com or email Joanne directly at j-o-a-n-n-f-l-e-m-i-n-g at flashfleming.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network Broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Greetings and welcome to Animal Instinct here on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Celia Kutcher. I'm also known as the Food Healer. And today I'm very excited to have a live show all about an animal that I know really nothing about and have loved since I was a child, manta rays. I know that sounds kind of weird, but I spent a lot of time in the Bahamas as a child and there were a lot of them around there. So it's not like I was by the East River and seeing them. Um, Our guest today is Josh Stewart, who's the Associate Director of the Manta Trust. Josh, are you there? I'm here. Thanks for having me. Oh, my God. Thank you for coming on. I'm really excited to learn all about manta rays. I know nothing about these guys. <laughs> you and a lot of people. Right. So I think that uh, we're going to get to all that scary kind of concepts that people have about them. But I just wanted to dive in, if that's okay with you. Sure. Sounds great. So first basic question, what are manta rays? What are manta rays? Well, manta rays are the largest ray on the planet. Um, they're a pelagic ray, so they're a little bit different from stingrays. Uh, most people think of stingrays when I start talking about mantas. Mm-hmm. And stingrays tend to live uh, on the seafloor, sandy bottoms. Uh, you might be really unlucky and step on one as you're wading into the ocean. Mm. But manta rays, uh, they actually live up in the water column, so they're constantly swimming. Um, they don't rest. They don't hang out on the bottom. Uh, they don't have barbs or stingers like stingrays do. And they can reach enormous sizes. So the biggest manta rays can be upwards of seven meters across. What? Are you serious? Wingspan. Um, Oh my god! They're really interesting to study. Very friendly, uh, charismatic animals. And I'm looking forward to telling you more about them today. I can't believe they get that big. My God! I thought you were going to say seven feet across, not seven meters. That's like an island. Yeah, yeah, they are enormous. Wow. Wow, that's crazy. Okay, so then I know a lot more about stingrays than manta rays because I've only seen like one or two manta rays, but they weren't even near that size. That's nuts. So are these animals that you find like in the middle of the ocean? Uh, Sometimes, yeah, they can be. So to clarify, we've got manta rays, which are the biggest of that uh, group of species, but we also have closely related mobula rays, and those guys are slightly smaller but look a lot like manta rays. They get confused for mantas quite a bit, and they tend to be more like uh, three feet, five feet, six feet across. Um, So a lot of people see those and think that they've seen manta rays, uh, even though they're a little bit smaller. And both speech, uh, both groups, both uh, genera, can be found um, in coastal areas. Mm-hmm. So we find them uh, pretty close to shore. That's where we, we tend to see them as researchers, um, tourists, uh, in more accessible places close to shore. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they are also found way far from shore, um, in some cases really, truly out in the middle of nowhere. Wow. <clears throat> uh, but they also tend to aggregate around seamounts and islands, 
that are themselves far from shore, mm-hmm. but serve as these sort of uh, aggregating sites for lots of pelagic species like mantas, sharks, marine mammals, and other things like that. So what are they most closely re- related to? Uh, well, they're most closely related probably to the eagle rays. Okay. Uh, might be one you're familiar with. So spotted eagle rays, um, cow nose rays. Those I are love things them. That we find they're so the cute. Oh, I love, they're one of my favorites. They're totally one of my favorites. And if anybody lives around Baltimore, Maryland, the Baltimore Aquarium has got great bull, uh, bull rays, and they also have amazing leopard rays. Their display is really, really good. So if you want to see them, they're there. The bull rays are so cute. They're like, they remind me of little pets. <laughs> Yeah, so so they're uh, they're a ray like other rays related to sharks. Um, sharks and rays are elasmobranchs, so they're all in the same family. Um, and these guys are are uh, basically flattened sharks. The really? Rays are if you took a shark and ran a steamroller over it, uh, you'd end up with a ray. Really? Wow. So do they have the same skin texture as well? Yeah, they do. Um, so manta rays, the oceanic manta rays, um, have sort of a sandpapery skin. Mm-hmm. So if you feel the top of them or even the bottom of them, uh, it's really rough. And those are called denticles, which are uh, basically like little teeth, which make this really impressive chain-link armor mm. uh, that's very robust, very sturdy, and can protect them from... Uh, smaller fishes that might, you know, come and try and bite them, uh, and bacteria and other things that they would be likely to encounter out in the open ocean. Cool. And so what do rays, or what do manta rays eat? Yeah, that's another difference between manta rays and stingrays. Manta rays are actually filter feeders. Really? So they're feeding on zooplankton, some of the tiniest organisms in the ocean. Uh, And like some other big filter feeders, feeding on huge quantities of these tiny little animals allows them to grow to these enormous sizes. Oh, cool. So, you know, they'll open up their gigantic gaping mouths and suck down thousands and thousands of gallons of of water to strain out huge volumes of zooplankton. Um, So even though the individual animals they're eating are really tiny, they're eating so many of them that they're able to reach these huge sizes. And now I have a question for you that we didn't discuss earlier, but I was wondering, you know, with all these animals that eat plankton, and a lot of them are really big, and we're talking whales, we're talking manta rays, Mm -hmm. with everything that's going on with the planet right now regarding global warming, is there a reduction in plankton? Um, it's hard to say. Depends sort of on the model uh, that you're looking at. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really difficult for us to predict what's going to happen in the future um, with zooplankton and other uh, climate-related impacts. One thing that we think is likely to happen is that uh, zooplankton will move poleward. Um, so as you have conditions that are more conducive towards the north and south, um, cooler water mainly, mm-hmm. you know, you'll have specific species that live in a certain habitat range move further north, um, and you'll have some species that can't handle warmer temperatures uh, lose their southern uh, or equatorward uh, boundaries. And so you see this sort of tendency to move towards the poles, uh, and we don't know how that's going to impact uh, mantas, for example, yeah. and other filter feeders. But it sort of depends how, uh, how plastic they are in their ability to change food sources, um, how flexible they are, or how reliant they are on specific regions uh, for other purposes that we don't know about, like maybe mating, mm-hmm. um, reproduction, uh, nursery habitats for their young, and that sort of thing. 
Um, so if they're able to just move north with, for example, shifting zooplankton, mm-hmm. then they might not be that heavily impacted. True. Um, but if they're losing habitat, uh, whether it's, you know, coastal lagoons where their offspring like to live that mm-hmm. are being lost to rising sea levels um, or who knows what, then we might see bigger impacts. Wow. And so what are they social animals? Like if it, I know sharks are pretty much, you know, loners and stuff. Do they still do they behave like sharks or do they travel in families? Like what's their story for that? Yeah, well, uh, great question. And that really depends on the species. Um, so the mantas, the true mantas, uh, the oceanic mantas tend to be pretty solitary. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of the different manta and mobula species, uh, once they're born, they're completely self-sufficient. And as far as we know, there's no maternal or parental care. Wow. So they pop out and off they go on their way, um, probably into some kind of nursery habitat where they're protected from predators. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no care from the mother like we see in marine mammals, for example. Wow. And, um, and then they after, after that... Uh, the oceanic mantas tend to stay on their own, um, although they'll aggregate in these uh, offshore sites, uh, cleaning stations where they'll come in to get parasites picked off. Uh, they also tend to court and mate in those areas, mm-hmm. so we see reproductive behavior where they all come together uh, in one location. And then the smaller reef mantas, which tend to, as the name suggests, live on coral reefs, mm-hmm. They seem to stay in larger groups. Um, so some of the work that we've been doing recently uh, shows that they'll spend huge stretches of time with five or six other individuals. And we don't know if that's always the same five or six individuals, uh, but certainly they like to stay in small groups. Mm-hmm. And then we also see you know, a range of differences um, in the smaller, the mobulas. Uh, for example, in Baja, California, we can get these annual aggregations of literally hundreds of thousands of uh, what's called mobula monkeyana. And these guys come together um, in schools that can be a half mile across. Oh, wow. Absolutely astounding numbers. Uh, And we think that they're all coming together to mate. Um, So even though they they tend to be, for the most part, um, sort of uh, on their own for most of the year, there are these various locations and times of year when they'll come together in much larger numbers. Cool. And so when you guys are doing this research, it's, do you have trouble, I mean, this is such a stupid question, but bear with me, please. When you're, in, when you're studying these manta rays and like you're following them in the ocean, do you have trouble identifying which one is which? Like, do they have markings that you can count on? Because everyone I've seen looks exactly the same. So do you mean uh, which one is which, uh, like which individual we're looking at? Yeah, exactly. Or do you exactly. mean different species? No, in terms of like different individuals. Like if you're trying to track one or you're trying to really follow one, it's, it's like if another one comes along, are you just like, oh, God, which one is it? Like, can you <laughs> yeah, great, great question. Um, so the, the mantas have spot patterns on their bellies. Oh, cool. And those patterns are unique to each animal. We consider them sort of like a fingerprint. And as far as we can tell, um, and some studies in aquariums have also confirmed, uh, that those patterns stay constant throughout their lifetime. Oh, so cool. they're born with this fingerprint, uh, and they're really quite distinctive. Um, if you looked at you know, a bunch of different photos of 10 or 20 different mantas, you'd see in an instant uh, that they're very easily identifiable. Uh, so we can actually use that to track individuals. That's how we've learned a lot about 
their biology and ecology, for example, how often they reproduce, mm-hmm. uh, what sites they go to, how likely they are to return to the same site, uh, and it also allows us to estimate population sizes. Cool. Cool. Well, thank God for those markings. My God, I can't even imagine what it would be like if they didn't have them. It's like, oh, look, a big ray. Okay, look, another one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, <yep>. Oh, no. <laughs> And so when you guys are out doing research, is this something, like, do you go out for weeks at a time? Like, how does this work? Yeah, well, again, it really depends on what we're looking for specifically, um, what species we're studying, where we're going. These guys, one of the reasons that we know so little about them uh, is because because they're kind of a pain to study. Mm. Uh, And that's because the places that we find them are often very far from shore, uh, require us going out on boats for weeks at a time. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's also, uh, in some cases, very unreliable sightings. Mm. So I've had many cases where, you know, I'll go somewhere for three weeks and we'll see one manta or two mantas. Oh, wow. uh, Just because, you know, it happened to be a bad season or something like that. Right, right. So, um, yeah, it really depends. In some cases, uh, one of my study sites is actually uh, quite close to um, a town in Mexico. Uh, So we can go out there. We can work with locals uh, to monitor the population, go out every week, very easy. Nice. Uh, And then there are other sites that require you to take a 30-hour boat ride and spend, you know, as long as you possibly can out there to get your work done. Um, So, yeah, they they live in a variety of different habitats, and it really just depends on, on which one we're talking about uh, in terms of what the field work ends up looking like. Wow. Well, see, this is why I will never study manta rays, because I get seasick at the drop of a hat, and the thought of being on a boat for three weeks is like... I mean, God, I can't even imagine. Yeah, you have to be uh, have to be used to that kind of thing. That's for sure. So, how long do these babies live for? How long do mantas live for? Yeah. Um, well, we're not positive. Uh, again, because you know they're very hard to study. Yeah. Um, there are certain things about them. Uh, it's quite easy to tell how long uh, bony fish lives mm-hmm. because you can take these little ear bones uh, from a dead one called otoliths. And you can cut them in half, and they've got tree rings, basically. Oh, wow. And you can see, you know, how many years they've lived for. Um, these guys don't have those, and most uh, elasmobranchs don't. Mm-hmm. Sharks, you can look at their vertebrae and try and do something similar. Um, so far, it's proved very difficult to do that for mantas. Wow. Uh, so we don't know exactly how long they live for. But using those unique spot patterns uh, in some places where people have been doing that for quite a long time, mm-hmm. We've been tracking the same animals for, in some cases, up to 30 or 40 years. Oh, cool. So we know that they live for at least that long um, and probably more like 50 or 60 or more years. So quite long-lived. Wow. I would hope so, you know, because they're so big and they're so majestic that I would kind of like to think that they live like forever, basically, you know. They seem like they would be a long-term animal. (laughs) Yeah, well, and it's also nice for us to go back to some of these sites and see the same animals year after year. Yeah, that's got to be really exciting. It's so cool. So, Josh, we need to take a quick break for station identification. I am talking to Josh Stewart, who is the Associate Director of the Manta Trust. We'll be back in about a minute and a half. Are you filing your own taxes and driving yourself crazy? Do you think a professional can do a better job of finding legal deductions? 
Do you own a business and need help with the accounting and taxes? Are you a not-for-profit business that needs financial guidance? Are you just plain tired of your boring accountant and looking for some fresh eyes? Try Fleming & Associates CPA. At Fleming & Associates, Joanne Flash Fleming can quantify anything in a flash. She'll do your taxes, assess your worth, and is even a forensic accountant, an investigator of white-collar crime. Joanne Fleming once said, It was terribly hard for me to read Moby Dick, but put a financial statement or tax return in front of me, it's like a novel. Imagine that. Has the political and financial news got you feeling down? Joanne Fleming was the accountant for the Occupy Wall Street movement back in 2010. Who better to trust with your financial secrets? For more info, go to flashfleming.com or email Joanne directly, J-O-A-N-N-F-L-E-M-I-N-G at flashfleming.com. And we are back. I am talking to Josh Stewart, who's the associate director of the Manta Trust, and we're learning all really kinds of cool things about stingrays and manta rays. So, Josh, I have to ask you this question because every single person that I talked to about this show, about this episode, was like, oh, my God, Steve Irwin. And so, (laughs) I know, I'm sorry, but, like, there's a lot of people that want to know what happened. They want to know what happened. The basic questions I'm getting is, what happened, was he attacked, and are raised vicious animals? Okay. Um, well, first, as a scientist, I have to qualify this as, you know, I wasn't there. Yep. We don't know what happened. I don't know uh, more about the details than, you know, you can find out on the Internet probably. Mm-hmm. But what I can tell you is that uh, stingrays, you know, they're not, they're not vicious animals. Um, the only time that they use those stingers, the barbs, is for self-defense, mm. and it actually takes quite a long time for them to regrow those barbs. Mm. So they don't want to be using them for no reason, yeah. uh, because then they will be absolutely defenseless if a predator comes along and tries to eat them. Wow! So they they reserve those for uh, probably for life-threatening situations, mm-hmm. or at least life-threatening as they perceive them. And my understanding of what happened uh, with Steve Irwin is that a ray that they were filming, um, you know, ended up getting cornered mm. during the dive and uh, fired its barb to defend itself. And by this absolute freak stroke of bad luck, uh, that happened to hit him in the heart, and that's <laughs> what killed him. Oh. So, you know, I, I don't, I honestly can't think of any other. Uh, report of a person actually being killed by a stingray. Um, you know, the barbs have some nasty bacteria on them, so mm-hmm. it, it hurts really badly Oof. when you uh, get stung in the foot. Yow. And maybe in, you know, in human history, I'm sure somebody has died from that infection or something like that. Yeah, totally. Um, but, you know, this is, they're not an aggressive animal, um, purely, purely self-defense. And, and my understanding is that that was a really um, tragic bad case of luck. Yeah, I mean, um, the whole thing just seems so sad, you know, and it's, I mean, with all due respect to Steve Irwin, because I think he did show, norm, like, us normal human beings a lot about animals and stuff like that, but a lot of the methods of, you know, picking them up and things like that are just, they just concerned me, and I'm, I'm very, very sorry that he's no longer with us, and I'm sorry that that happened to him, but it's kind of like, you know, if you see a wild animal, it's not your pet, it's not your friend, so respect it and leave it and let it do its thing, because that's all it wants to do. It's not like looking to, you know, it doesn't want a bad day, <laughs> basically, you know. I don't think for the most part, an- parts, animals want to fight, no matter what they are. 
Right. And and mantas similarly are, you know, extremely they're actually very gregarious, very friendly animals. Um, you know, a stingray will probably swim swim quickly away from you if you uh come too close to it, whereas mantas tend to actually seek out these interactions with divers and snorkelers. So they'll come to you um, completely harmless. They don't even have a barb. They're big animals um, and also need to be respected yeah. uh, and not touched and so on. Um, but, you know, anybody who's been in the water with a manta will recount for you these sort of uh, incredibly dramatic and very personal interactions uh, where they come up and they look at you, they spend time with you, they, they actually interact with you. Wow. And you can tell that the animal that you're looking at um, has some level of intelligence. It's yeah. not just a fish kind of swimming by and checking out what this weird bubbly thing is. Um, it actually is coming and, and paying attention to you. Um, and that's an experience that's really special for anybody who's been in the water uh, with mantas. And definitely, I think, for all of uh, those of us who work with mantas, that's a nice perk of the job as well. So when you go out there, like if you're doing like a three-week stint, for example, and you see the rays, I'm assuming they get to know you after a period of time? Uh, yeah, to some extent, um, if we see the same ones day after day. Yeah. Uh, often we see very friendly ones, and they're, you know, in many cases, they're the ones that we do see day after day. Um, there are some sites that we go to where you jump in the water at a, a cleaning station where we know there tend to be mantas. Mm-hmm. And after five or ten minutes in the water, with your bubbles going off as a diver, the mantas will actually start approaching. So there, there are no mantas around until they hear your bubbles. And it seems very convincing uh, that they are actually coming to us. Um, That's wild. They're coming and hanging out with us. And those, are, those tend to be the more friendly ones that, you know, then we'll see multiple days in a row on multiple dives. I mean, the thing that's blowing my mind with this is, you know, because of the shape of the mouth, I just assumed that they ate fish. So it's like, okay, so the researchers or the divers go and they feed them fish, and that's why they're coming. But it's not like you can have, like, a nice big bucket of plankton waiting for them. No, that's right, yeah. And a lot of the work done with uh, with sharks is done through chumming. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great way to attract sharks and deploy a tag or collect an ID or whatever you might be doing with them. Uh, but because mantas are filter feeders, we can't do that. Um, and that has certainly also contributed to them, in some cases, being very difficult to study. Uh, because even if we know that they're around, in some cases it can be hard to get in the water with them. Because we can't, you know, get them to come close to the boat. Yeah, there's no way to bribe them. It's not like, yay, there's people, not. snacks, <laughs> you know. That's right. And so do the little manta rays eat plankton as well? Yeah, they do. Uh huh. Um, the the little mobulas. Yeah. So generally, all of the species are plankton feeders. Um, we do know that occasionally they will eat small fish. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some cases, you'll get these thick layers of zooplankton, uh, which are mingled with thick layers of fish, mm-hmm. and uh, and we see from stomach contents uh, in animals that are caught in fisheries that they are occasionally feeding on small fishes as well. Uh, but the bulk of their diet seems to be from zooplankton. I I feel like a complete idiot. I mean, I saw these things for years when I was a kid. I swear to God, I thought they ate small fish. I had no idea. <laughs> really yeah, well, other, other filter feeders do. Big whales eat uh, huge schools of small fish. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, occasionally whale sharks and basking sharks will take down a few fish. But, uh, but yeah, for these guys, zooplankton... And, well, and other filter-feeding elasmobranchs, sharks and rays, zooplankton is definitely the, the primary food source. It's so wild. 
And so what do you think the manta ray's primary goal is in the animal kingdom or like their job? I kind of believe that all animals that are on the planet have a, a certain purpose and that's why they're here ecologically. Do you think the rays have one? Um, yeah, that's an interesting question and one that I get a lot. And I think the driver behind that uh, has been a lot of this um, ecological theory and messaging about trophic cascades and mm -hmm. things like that, where if you remove a top predator like a shark or orcas or um, any of those big guys that are, are living up at the top of the food chain, you start to see ramifications uh, further down the food chain as yeah. you have uh, release from predators, you know, you get big booms in population and stuff like that. And so that's why everybody, I think, always has this um, question of, yeah, you know, what would happen if we lost all the manta rays or what do they do? Mm -hmm. And um, that's, that's hard to fill for the big uh, plankton feeders. Not everything comes about in the animal kingdom because it fills a specific role mm -hmm. in, a, in a food chain or a community. Um, it sort of just comes about because it was able to make a living. Yeah. And so these guys, you know, have evolved this ability to filter huge amounts of zooplankton um, in order to make a living. So what would happen if we removed them? Um, would there be huge booms in zooplankton? The answer is probably not. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, they are an animal uh, that's able to f feed on huge quantities of other small things like fish eggs and fish larvae. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we include those in zooplankton often. Um, and so it's possible that they have some role in terms of uh, controlling other predators, predatory fish, in early life stages. Mm -hmm. So who knows if, you know, um, fish that have these massive spawning aggregations where whale sharks and occasionally mantas will come feed on all the fish spawn, um, it's possible that those populations would be larger if there weren't mantas around feeding yeah. on uh, their eggs and larvae. Uh, early on in those life cycles. So the short answer is that we don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't know exactly what their role is. Um, my sort of appreciation for them is, uh, is just that intrinsic value. Um, I would be sad, and, and I hope other people would be sad, if we didn't have animals like mantas around in the oceans, yeah. uh, you know, if they were all wiped out. Um, so they have a, a social and a cultural importance to us. Um, and, you know, they're one of those things that keep our oceans wild. I mean, I'm assuming that because they're so ancient and they're so big and they're just so amazing, I would assume that somewhere somebody's got some serious folklore about these animals, like maybe the Pacific Islands or something like that, because they do have that kind of mysticism feel to them, you know? They're just so unusual that they really, they look like they're not even from this planet, really, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And there are... Um a number of different instances where uh, there will be petroglyphs um, or cool. indigenous paintings and things like that uh, that do have mantas, and that's been shown in um, the Peru and Ecuador area, oh, cool. uh, Mexico, Pacific Islands. So I, I don't have all the details on that. I'm not an expert in that area, but absolutely, certainly there has been um, that sort of historical cultural value attached to mantas. Well, we need you to be an expert in the area you're in because, you know, we got the folklores. We can write that stuff down, but we need you guys <laughs> out there now helping us out with all of this. And so what got you into manta rays? Uh, well, I uh, saw my first manta when I was uh, an undergraduate, and we were in the water doing a coral survey. Mm -hmm. And as we were all sort of, you know, getting ready, strapping things to our dive gear uh, already in the water, 
I was looking out to this uh, the shelf break where the coral sort of dropped off and it turned into very deep water. Mm-hmm. And all my dive buddies were looking back at me. Um, and all of a sudden, out of the depths comes this enormous manta. Oh, wow. um, for me, you know, it, it looked gigantic. <laughs> Look, think, thinking back on it, it probably wasn't a particularly huge one. Um, but, you know, at the time, it was just, oh, my God, how could this <laughs> enormous animal be coming out of the deep like this? And it's, you know, 10 feet from me. And I'm screaming, and I'm trying to get everybody's attention, and I'm pointing. Um, and I lift up my video camera and, and start filming and think I'm going to have this National Geographic moment with this beautiful creature. Uh-huh. Uh, and then it hangs out, and, and off it goes just, you know, 30 seconds later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and nobody else saw it. Oh, and, and I, I looked down at my camera, and uh, I'd forgot to hit the record button because no! I was so excited. <laughs> And, uh, and, you know, so nobody believed me. Um, it was a uh, point of contention for the rest of the field trip. Oh, no. Um, but, you know, from that point on, I was, I was sort of hooked uh, with the idea of the sort of mystery of the animals, um, how little there was known about them, um, how, you know, gorgeous and, and majestic they are in the water. And then it wasn't until four or five years later uh, when I had the opportunity to go to the Maldives and do some work oh, cool. uh, with an existing project there on mantas um, that I really got to, you know, get in the water with them every day, uh, experience them as an animal, have these personal interactions, uh, and also learn very much about how, really, how little we knew about them at the time. Um, basic stuff, you know, the stuff that you're asking me now and yeah. which... Uh, a fifth grader would ask, you know, about manta rays. Uh, the answer at that point pretty much was, well, we don't know, to just yeah. about every one of those questions. And so that was really exciting for me as well, um, you know, to, to know that there is still a subject out there as a as sort of at the time a young scientist that you could contribute to, that you could learn a lot about yeah. um, that somebody hadn't already done. That is really exciting. So that exciting. was exciting. Um, and then also at the time there was this uh, conservation threat that was becoming apparent uh, that mantas were being captured more and more frequently, mm. uh, that they were really vulnerable to fisheries, that people were starting to catch them on purpose mm. instead of just by accident. Um, and so that was sort of the, the last straw for me uh, that motivated my entry into the manta research world. Um, and at that point there were half a dozen of us doing work on mantas wow. anywhere in the world. Wow. Um, and, and that's what sort of precipitated the creation of our organization, the Manta Trust, cool. uh, was to facilitate all this joint research uh, among the few of us that were working on these animals and to try and help uh, increase the knowledge about the species, uh, improve their conservation status, mm-hmm. and also inform the public about them as much as possible. I mean, I love that there are still things on the planet that we still just don't know that much about. You know, I think that's really, really cool, especially in the ocean. I mean, I feel like, you know, in terms of the ocean, I mean, I'm I'm probably 100 percent wrong, but I kind of feel like we know like. 2% 2% of really what goes on down there, you know? It's like every time when I was a kid, I used to snorkel all the time in this one reef that I knew very, very well. And it wasn't very big, but it wasn't it wasn't a tourist area. So it was very, very consistent. Like there were real, the only predators out there were really just the fish themselves. So, you know, it was this really pretty amazing little coral reef and community. And 
it's, I mean, we would see manta rays once in a blue moon and stuff. And once in a while, we'd have like, or actually we'd see stingrays. And once in a while, we'd have a manta ray come through. And it was really cool because it was kind of like, it's a little underground neighborhood, you know. And even when I got to know it really, really well, it was still always new stuff coming in. I mean, I remember a fisherman caught an eel that was, oh my God, the thing was probably 10 feet long. And it's like, this is down in the Atlantic off the Bahamas. And it's like, nobody'd seen an eel that big. And it was just like, oh my God, what's in that water you know so it's like finding out that there are things that still are elusive enough that we don't know that much about to me is really exciting because it gives me hope that there's more good stuff going on down there you know yeah absolutely and you know for us as scientists that's what keeps it interesting for us is that there is still so much that we don't know Um, and it'll be I think a very sad day for all humans when we learn everything there is to know. Um, not that that's going to happen anytime soon or ever, I hope. but that would just be a tragedy, um, you know, to not have things to wonder about and things to be curious about yeah. um, and research to be done. Uh, but certainly in, in oceans and marine systems, it's extraordinarily difficult to conduct research mm. much harder than on terrestrial systems. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that in itself has meant that we've been able to do much less research on the ocean than we have, you know, on land. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also can't see through water. So yeah. it's easy for us to do large-scale research about the planet um, on land because we can do things with satellites, uh, literally satellite imagery to look at forests, habitat distribution, things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we can do nothing like that uh, except in very specific cases in coastal ecosystems. Um, But generally, you know, for the ocean overall, we can't see very much of it. And that makes it really difficult for us to study it. So you're absolutely right. I mean, the statistic that they always uh, throw out is that we've explored more of the moon than we have of the oceans. Wow. Well, that says a lot right there, boy. So I hate to ask you this question because I'm afraid I know what the answer is. What are uh, Ray's biggest threats? Yeah, well, I think you do know this. Uh, Damn it. Right now it's us. (laughs) Damn it. So uh, predators to manta rays are few and far between. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sharks are probably their main predator. Uh, But you can imagine a big flat disc that's seven meters across. It's kind of a hard thing to eat if yeah, you're a shark. <laughs> and so we see, you know, we see bites and scars and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we don't know how many die from shark attacks because we wouldn't then see them swimming around with yeah. scars. Yeah. Um, but we think it's pretty low. Um, and orcas will occasionally take them, but mm-hmm. again, that's also pretty rare. And so their adaptation to having uh, low predation, because they're such big animals, is to reproduce very infrequently. Mm. So we know that they give birth to just one pup per pregnancy. Oh, wow. Whereas other sharks will give birth to a litter of 10, 15, 20 offspring. Wow. Um, They give birth only once a year Mm. after a pregnancy of about, uh, sorry, excuse me, uh, they give birth after a pregnancy of a year. Okay. Um, Wow. And we know that uh, depending on the place, they only become pregnant between every two to seven years. Wow. So that's, that's really low. Um, that is extraordinarily low for a shark or a ray. Um, that's more like a marine mammal. Mm-hmm. 
And so that means that they're really vulnerable to exploitation. Mm. You know, we always see these uh, sustainable fisheries guidelines and what fish should you be eating because it's sustainable. Yeah. Um, under no circumstances would a fish that reproduces that slowly ever be considered a sustainable option. That's a good point. Um, because, you know, it's just it, they can't reproduce fast enough to uh, replace the animals that we're taking out of the population. Yeah. And so uh, the other unfortunate thing is that they're really good at getting caught by accident Ugh. in just about every type of fishing gear that we use. Oh. So they get caught in purse seines that target tuna, oh. um, gill nets, which are used in artisanal and small-scale fisheries pretty much everywhere around the world. Mm. Um, that's a big one for bycatch, bycatches, any non-intentional catch. Long lines they get wrapped up in, which target tuna and swordfish uh-huh. um, and other sharks and things like that. So really, the bycatch has always probably been a, a big issue for these guys. Makes sense. And then just in the last 10 years or so, uh, they have increasingly been captured uh, either in targeted fisheries, where people will actually go out and try and find them and catch oh. them or harpoon them, um, or in cases where normally they would be caught by accident and then released, yeah. people have been retaining them, keeping them more frequently. So are they eating them? Are they making them into trophies? Like, what are they doing with them? Yeah, well, that it depends where you are. Okay. Um, in the Americas, they do actually eat them. They do. Um, so they're, you know, local uh, staple in some places, along with other rays, mm-hmm. rays and um, cow nose rays and things like that. And they, they'll dry them. Uh, in South America, they'll make something called manta machaca. Um, and so that that's actually for local consumption, mm-hmm. not that that makes it sustainable. Yeah. Um, but then the more worrying trend recently had been that uh, their gills were actually, uh, the, the gill rakers, which allow them to strain that zooplankton out of the water, mm-hmm. they were being uh, specifically targeted for their gill rakers, which were then dried and shipped to China and uh, other parts of Southeast Asia, where they were being used uh, as a pseudo-remedy, um, oh. you know, like many of the sort of traditional Asian yeah. remedies, Yeah. although it wasn't actually a, a traditional remedy. It's something that seems to have been invented um, in the last 10 years or so. Oh. You know, I swear to God, it's like between like animal parts for aphrodisiacs and this kind of thing. It's just we're just such we're terrible to the animal kingdom. You know, we really are. If it's like, oh, my God, we could have good sex if we ingest this. Let's kill all the rhinos. Perfect. You know, it's um, it's pretty amazing. It's it's so sad. And it's also I mean, you know, it's not like we have trouble reproducing or that, you know, we have a shortage of human beings on this planet. It's. I don't know. Sometimes we just really stink, you know? Mm, yeah, certainly. And we're, we're starting to see, uh, in some cases, pretty dramatic declines mm. in manta populations. Mm. Uh, manta and mobulas are both targeted by these fisheries. And so we're seeing declines globally um, in, those, in numbers of mantas and mobulas. Mm-hmm. And then in some specific locations, uh, we're seeing really precipitous, dramatic, fast declines as Ugh. well. Which is worrying for us. Yeah, I'll bet. And so, I mean, is there anything that, like, us normal lay people can do to help raise? Um, Yeah, absolutely. Well, before we get to what we can do, uh, the international community has definitely stepped up uh, their game and and worked to conserve these animals. Um, There have been a number of big international treaties, like the Convention on the uh, Trade 
in the international trade in endangered species, where mantas and mobulas were both recently listed, oh, good. Uh, which means that you can't actually legally ship them um, internationally without first proving that your fishery is sustainable, good. which would be you know essentially impossible. Yeah. Um, and then they've also been protected on a number of other uh, conventions, the Convention on Migratory Species, for example, good. Uh, which should lead to the member states, these various countries, uh, protecting them. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have seen that as well, a number of nationalities that uh, have protected mantas or both mantas and mobulas in their national waters. Good. So, you know, this response is positive, and I think that we will start seeing um, positive changes, you know, maybe uh, stop those declines and in some cases start to see recoveries, hopefully, um, if we keep pushing for this sort of management. Um, yeah. Now, what, what can you do and yeah, what, can what can we do? What can I do? Yeah, well, uh, the big thing actually is just to get out there and go diving and snorkeling with mantas. And this is, this is what uh, protected whales back yeah. when we decided to stop whaling was public outcry over uh, our decision to kill them mm-hmm. um, and that sort of humanization of whales. You know, we, we like them because they sing. Yeah. We like them because we can see ourselves in them. Yeah. Um, and certainly that's the case with mantas as well. Okay. And we see, you know, a ton of support from the dive community um, for manta conservation because they've been in the water with mantas. They know what it feels like uh, to spend some time diving with one. Um, and they can really, you know, get that sort of person, personal relationship with mantas. Yeah. The other benefit of that is that um, in many cases in these small coastal communities, you're actually providing an economic alternative by diving with mantas that's in most cases more valuable than the fisheries for mantas. That's a great point. So, so one manta uh, can be used, if you will, mm-hmm. in sustainable tourism for its entire lifetime and, you know, continue reaping those benefits for the coastal communities who are taking people out diving and snorkeling. Cool. Whereas if you kill it, yeah, it's exactly. a, you know, one time, uh, one time and not very high value on that manta. Yeah. So we're seeing in many cases that um, the value of dive and snorkeling tourism with mantas is encouraging both governments and local communities Good. to step up and, and either stop fishing them or try and reduce the impact that they're having as a community on these populations. Good. Uh, I mean, you know, diving with one is just magic. It's just, it's an, uh, the only other time I've ever dove and have had like some crazy experience like that was running into a, a school of cuttlefish, which was also incredible. But like mantas are just, they're just magic and watching them like, sail through the water is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. I mean, they're so majestic and so gorgeous, and I wish that more people could see them and really experience what it's like to have them around, because they're just cool. I mean, I'm so excited about this interview. I've been looking for you guys for about two and a half years now, and I've been just, you know, trying to find someone that really, really knows their stuff. And when I came on your site, I was so impressed by it, and I think what you guys are doing is amazing. It can't be easy, considering how far you have to travel and do all that stuff, you know. But can you tell us how to reach you guys on your website and where you are on social media? Because sadly, we're running out of time. Sure, yeah, no problem. Uh, our website has a ton of great information um, on our all of our projects. We now have projects in 20 countries around the world. Cool. Um, lots of great background info on mantas, uh, what we're doing, how you can get involved, and so on. And that is mantatrust.org. Uh, and you can also find us on Twitter 
which is, again, just at Mantatrust, um, and Facebook. Cool. Oh, Josh, I have really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. I learned so much from you. This was great. I had a really great time. Well, great. I'm uh, very grateful that you had me on, and uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Yeah, and thank you. And for everybody else, I will be back next week with another brand-new exciting adventure and interview for Animal Instinct. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Stay warm and take care. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.